This is an ABC podcast. We're the only Commonwealth country in the world that doesn't have a treaty with its first people. Labor, for a number of years now, has had a commitment to the Uluru Statement in full voice treaty truth. It's time for a treaty in this country. Anything less is not worth the paper it's written on. How White Australia acknowledges and reconciles its relationship with our First Nations peoples is one of the key questions for this year. Unlike many other post-colonial societies, we do not have any form of treaty to use as a framework for that relationship. In the current debate over the voice to Parliament, there's no argument about the need for a treaty. Rather, when or how that treaty process should begin. Why do all sides see a treaty as so important? What would a treaty process look like? And what would Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians have to gain from a treaty or treaties? In this revision with me, Annabelle Quince, we look at how treaties have worked in New Zealand and Canada and what, if anything, we can learn from their story. Historically, Canada and New Zealand were part of the British Empire. New Zealand a colony and Canada a dominion. Yet unlike here in Australia, the British Crown did recognise the sovereignty of their First Nations people. Let's begin in Canada, where First Nations peoples traditionally used agreements like treaties, often in the form of a wampum belt, to mark agreements between peoples and tribes. Yes, Indigenous peoples also entered into treaties with other Indigenous peoples that were recorded in wampum belts, which are beads woven into hides, and images are in those beads to indicate what our agreement is with those peoples. I'm John Boros, and I'm the Loveland Chair in Indigenous Law at the University of Toronto Law School. There was definitely agreements, trade agreements, between what was called the Hudson's Bay Company, which was given a huge monopoly in Canada by Britain, and that uh, company, when it worked in Indigenous territories, entered into an agreements with those people to set up trading posts and, you know, opportunities for commercial exchange. But it was also the case that governments entered into treaties with Indigenous peoples fairly quickly, often using those wampum protocols that I was talking about earlier. So Europeans took technologies that we were using of law and that they used them to bind themselves and, of course, us alongside them in these agreements. One thing that gave the First Nations people of Canada some political leverage was the fact that both Britain and France were vying for influence in the region. Well, those European powers themselves had different ways of dealing with Indigenous peoples, but the main implication is that Indigenous peoples would often play them off against one another. And so if the French authorities weren't giving what Indigenous peoples would hope they might get, they might go to the English authorities and try to strike a better deal. So as long as there wasn't a monopoly on political authority from those European nations, the First Nations had some bargaining room there to be able to find the best deal that might be possible. What happens after the war between the French and the British? When Britain became the major power in the region, did the First Nations people lose that leverage? It did, slightly, but that was still the case that Britain could be played off against the United States. And so that happened for about 100 years 
But after our War of 1812, when Britain and the United States settled with one another, then indigenous power slowly diminished. In 1763, after Britain became the dominant power, King George III issued the Royal Proclamation, which set in place the constitutional structure for the negotiation of treaties with the indigenous population. Our courts have called the Royal Proclamation a Magna Carta for the Indians, or Pax Britannica. The idea is that the lands in North America would be reserved to the Indians, that there was to be no ceding or surrendering of those lands unless there was a public meeting called for that purpose. So the Royal Proclamation became the law of much of Canada, which reserved lands to Indians until such time as there was a treaty process that transferred that land to others. Basically, the Royal Proclamation was to establish that all those Indian tribes that were connected uh, to the king by treaties, and that was most of them, they were considered to be protected by the king himself. My name is Sagage Henderson. I'm retired professor of law and advisor to the Grand Council of the Micmacs. And the territory was protected from the governors and only the governors with the permission of the, the British sovereign could purchase land when the Indians were ready to purchase it. Otherwise, they were forbidden to trespass or move into uh, Indian territory. And you get a lot of British treaties in Florida and new treaties in Quebec and uh, the French territories. That all sounds good, but how did it play out on the ground across Canada? It wasn't until really about 1820 in Ontario that they started purchasing land. And then a little bit after 1870, in the Western Territories, they started into the numbered treaties, which had at least on paper sessions of land to the British Crown. But all those transfers were really questionable in the sense that they were never talked about in the treaty negotiations. They were on the written treaty paper, but no one agreed to that. And most of the indigenous people's history says they agreed to share the land with the British sovereign, but they didn't allow it to be dispossessed. And the British crown never purchased it. But most of the tribes in the Atlantic provinces never entered into a treaty for the cession of land, and the lands were never purchased. They were just started to be taken in the 18th and 19th century by the settlers, and there was no mechanism to stop the settlers from doing that in the colonial office. So throughout most of Canada, I think there was a sense that the treaties were entered into with the requisite solemnities that would create binding obligations between the parties. But then their implementation, as I mentioned earlier, fell far short of what was agreed to and those exchanges. And so there was not a sense that treaties were being fairly implemented. And there was grievances around the promises that were high and the actual reality on the ground that wasn't following through with those promises. In other words, the Crown got what they wanted, the land, but they didn't in return provide the opportunities for the education and the health care and the, the infrastructural development that was promised to them as a part of the exchange for the land or the use of the land. 
So by the time we come to the 1900s, how much of the land in Canada had been transferred out of Indigenous ownership? Well, most of it had been dispossessed by that time, except for the Northern Territories. How does the Canadian story compare to what happened in New Zealand? The biggest change in New Zealand occurs not with Cook's arrival in 1769, but with the first fleet coming into Botany Bay in 1788. That makes New Zealand part of an imperial world just across the ditch. Michael Belgrave, I'm Professor of History at Massey University's Auckland campus. And all sorts of ships, some of them trading, but many connected with the sealing and whaling trade, are coming through New Zealand and to New Zealand. So they're looking for places to get supplies, to, if they're shore whalers, to set up camps. And for that, they need Māori support and Māori engagement. So trade, which is fundamentally about agreements, begins very early. In 1835, a British official in New Zealand, James Busby, got a number of Māori chiefs to sign a statement declaring themselves rulers of New Zealand. Busby sent the declaration to the British King and it was formally acknowledged by the Crown in 1836. The Declaration of Independence was partly encouraged by Busby and the British government in order to put off interests from other colonial powers. So there would seem to be particular concern that, that the French might be interested in New Zealand. And so this was an action that, that was encouraged in order to assert that this was an independent country and that independence would be supported and protected by the British Crown. My name's Carwin Jones. I'm from a Māori tribe iwi called Ngāti Kahununu. I am Pukenga Matua, which is the lead academic in the Ahunga Tikanga program, which is the Māori Laws and Philosophy program at Te Wānanga Orokawa, which is a Māori tertiary institution in Ōtaki. It's quite clear there's no real dispute in what the declaration says, though, and it does say that Māori hold collectively sovereignty and the authority in Aotearoa in New Zealand. And the humanitarians are really quite committed to the idea not of New Zealand becoming a colony, which they actually abhor, but of Māori actually running a society which was independent and they saw as being Christianised and civilised in, in European terms, but an independent country run by Māori institutions. That declaration of independence became a problem five years later when the British wanted to exercise some sovereignty over New Zealand. And that's part of the reason why the Treaty of Waitangi is then required when the British Crown want to assert some authority here as well. And there's quite a deliberate attempt to ensure that as many people that signed the Declaration of Independence also sign the Treaty of Waitangi from the British point of view because that's seen as being a necessary step in moving from that situation where there's a statement that's saying that Māori and only Māori exercise authority here to allowing for some authority to also be exercised by the British government. The treaty kind of has two parts. It has a part that transfers supposedly sovereignty in Article 1 and in Article 2 protects chiefly authority 
primarily over property, but protects chiefly authority. So where the humanitarians have come, they were once saying it would be a Māori sovereign government, independent, but under British protection. They have now moved to the position that this is untenable. So what they're saying is it will be up to Britain to establish a government. The Treaty of Waitangi was signed in 1840, and there has been debate ever since about the use of the term sovereignty in the English version of the treaty. So the transfer of sovereignty is an issue, but the important question, which actually is there in both drafts, is the creation of a government, a national government with a national system of laws. And many Māori who were evangelical Christians or even Catholic understood the idea of law and were committed to the idea of law at the time. But the second article is not just a guarantee of property, it's a guarantee of chiefly authority. And it kind of makes sense. If I was to summarise what the treaty meant and it was signing, I would say that the treaty meant that a government would be introduced and its primary role was to protect Māori while colonisation took place. And if there was a conflict between colonisation and the protection of Māori, then the protection of Māori, and that's chiefly authority, took a priority. As early as 1847, Governor Gray had kind of shifted things quite a bit. He was kind of saying that the treaty allows for colonisation, which protects Māori rights as long as they don't get in the way of colonisation. When the Treaty of Waitangi was signed in 1840, Māori owned almost 100% of the land in New Zealand. 80 years later, in 1920, they owned only 8% of the land. By the end of the 1850s, the governors will claim that they have acquired title of more than half of the territory of New Zealand. Most of that territory is in the South Island, where the population is particularly small and where major misunderstandings about the nature of the agreements, particularly in relating to natural resources, mean that those agreements really are very dodgy in terms of being adequate agreements about what was sold and what wasn't. There are a series of processes that are put in place But those processes reflect not the treaty, but the increasing political power of European settlers, many of whom see the treaty as an obstacle to their own interests. And then by the late 19th century, the European, the government is saying that what the treaty was, it was a guarantee that all your land would be acquired through agreement. And we've done that. Apart from the land we confiscated, we've purchased everything. Well, those purchases were often extremely unsatisfactory. The dispossession from their land, along with assimilation policies, was incredibly destructive. And by the 1960s and 70s, in both Canada and New Zealand, there emerged a new generation of Indigenous leaders. There was the civil rights movement across the world and, of course, in North America in particular, with African-Americans, Black Americans in the South United States. And in the mid to north parts of North America, there's kind of this red 
power movement. And so there was this mobilization to create pressure to honor the treaties and to implement the promises that were made. And with that political rise in consciousness around civil rights and human rights came court cases. And those court cases started to recognize that treaties were justiciable, they're enforceable in court, the promises needed to be implemented and followed through with. And so those early cases in the 1970s recognized that there was unfinished business of confederation, both for those treaties that hadn't been implemented properly, and then, of course, for parts of the country where treaties had not been entered into. There was pressure to start the treaty process or continue the treaty process in a modern form. Two things sort of happened. One is that ultimately we had to go to court, and we had just the first generation of Indigenous lawyers who could help guide other lawyers through the court. And in Nova Scotia and Ontario and other places, and even in BC in the, the 70s, the court agreed that the Indians had treaties. And they couldn't get around that fact. And the, the Crown tried to argue that these treaties were obsolete and had been extinguished somehow by war or non-use or things like that. And the common law courts just couldn't find any rational excuse for why the treaties ended. So the courts all affirmed that the treaties existed as far back as 1726 in Canada. Then the question became, what is the courts going to do about that? We moved away from the courts, the Supreme Court of Canada, to the process of constitutional reform. And in the constitutional reform in 82, we inserted and the United Kingdom and the Canadian government eventually agreed that our Aboriginal and treaty rights were part of the Constitution of Canada and should be constitutionally protected. In 1982, Section 35 was included in the Constitution of Canada, and it was a game-changer. It recognised and affirmed Aboriginal rights and protected a range of Indigenous and treaty rights. Treaties and Aboriginal rights were recognised in Canada's Constitution in 1982. It says the existing Aboriginal and treaty rights of the Aboriginal peoples of Canada were hereby recognised and affirmed. And so that made, in 1982, treaty rights alongside Aboriginal rights the highest law of the land. It sits alongside, really, our federalism structures to structure the relationship between provincial crown, federal crown, and the First Nations. And since then, we've litigated about 30 cases, and we've won most of those cases on the issues of either Aboriginal or treaty rights using the constitutional provision. <laughs> New Zealand in the 1960s and 70s, it was a similar story. Well, a number of things are happening in the 1960s and they're, they're contributing to an increasing consciousness of dispossession. One is the international circumstances, that the international protest movements, the links that Māori are making with Aboriginal communities in Australia, with Native American communities and First Nation communities in North America. So there's a kind of sharing of that sense of disposition and activism. But what had actually led the New Zealand government in 1975 to admit that there had been breaches of the Waitangi Treaty? Well, in 1975, you have a Labour government in office and 
there is a land march. And that land march is led by Fina Kupa, but it's a really an alliance of older and younger Māori, because there is a generational divide occurring here, but it comes together over the land march. It's a protest over these long-standing but continuing sense that Māori land is being lost. The Labour government is very surprised by that. That gives Machirata, who's the Māori member from Northern Māori, the opportunity to raise the question of an inquiry, an inquiry to look at Māori grievances. And Māori have used inquiries right back to the 1840s. They've demanded inquiries into, into their grievances, and there are hundreds and hundreds of such inquiries taking place. So this is nothing new about that. So the Waitangi Tribunal is established. It has very broad jurisdiction, but nobody at the time sees what it might become a decade later. The Waitangi Tribunal is a commission of inquiry, but it's a standing commission of inquiry, and it can hear claims brought by Māori alleging that the Crown has breached the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi, but the tribunal has now gone back to having this contemporary jurisdiction very much focused on contemporary policy issues. There have been significant claims and inquiries and reports around Māori language. There's an ongoing inquiry at the moment around Māori health. The tribunal, it's largely a recommendatory body, so it makes recommendations to the government that the government can choose to adopt or or not. But then there's also a process for the historical claims whereby settlement of those claims can be negotiated with another arm of the, the Ministry of Justice who used to be called the Office of Treaty Settlements. They're now part of the Office of Māori Crown Relations. Deeds of settlement, they're a formula and they run along a certain track. There are financial compensation, and that financial compensation is set by a series of relativities, which is a very well-kept secret. So in a sense, what tribes get is very much tied to what the Crown thinks they're entitled to, not necessarily on the basis of the agreement, but on things like their size and the territory that they lost, rather than the actual grievances. Then you have cultural redress, which is often about naming, return of sacred sites in particular. The Crown recognises the treaty grievances that it has done, and it finishes with an apology. So each each settlement is accompanied by a sort of a narrative, a background, which outlines an agreed account of what happened to that tribe. Many tribes feel vindicated by much of the process, but they also feel that their views have often been crushed in that process of negotiation because the Crown, in the end, has a right of veto on such things. What have some of these settlements actually meant for communities? Has it been very significant in terms of improving the sort of economic and social conditions for many communities? At one level, Māori social economic conditions are far, far greater than anything that could be covered by any monetary compensation provided in this process. However, the settlements are much more important for the way that they relocate tribal authorities and tribal groups in their local regions, often making them among the biggest players in those regions. 
Tainui Waikato are one of the biggest economic players in the Waikato. Same is true for Naitau. So they've used their resources often very effectively to create an economic base for their people to support the economic educational development of their people. But in many ways, it's more important that they've been able to see themselves as part of the contemporary world, as as organizations that must be negotiated with for environmental and other reasons. I think the treaty's been incredibly important. We've seen that the treaty has been breached and has been ignored by government for significant parts of our history. And we also see that we're dealing with many of the same issues that Indigenous people and other countries are dealing with. One of the things I think the treaty is helpful for is that it does give us a a framework, a kind of starting point to have some of those conversations. We know that despite its flawed implementation, we know that in 1840 there was this moment of consent between Māori and the British Crown in which they agreed that there would be space for the Crown to exercise some authority and guarantees that Māori authority would continue. So we have even set out in very broad terms, and we don't have the, a whole lot of detail around that, but a sense that public power is going to be shared. And so I think that has provided a framework for us to try and think through as we encounter new situations and as society changes, and it provides a starting point. How do we think about the recognition of Māori authority expressed as tanga? alongside this authority that the Crown has of Kawanatanga. And do you think if you hadn't had those original treaties that the Canadian state would have been far less interested in actually engaging with First Nations people in Canada? Yes and no. Uh, the treaties were very important, only in that it illustrated that the Indigenous nations were seen as nations by the European nations and the European law of nations at the time. In North America, we have nothing but treaties from the United States and Canada. In Canada, we have 300 treaties, not counting the modern treaties. And in the United States, we have about 400 treaties. We have developed and lived a much better life under the treaties than the people who had non-treaties. People who had non-treaties were never recognized as being a nation or being a society or being controlled by the consensual law of nation. That makes a a big difference in the conception of who are you and what is your relationships. And sometimes the statement is made across the country that we're all treaty people. So, of course, Indigenous peoples have rights that flow from those treaties that are promises made by the Crown to them. But other people who aren't Indigenous to the continent also have treaty rights because they can peacefully settle there with their permission of the first owners, and they can take up all of the uh, possibilities that flow from that without resting on a unilateralism. So it, it creates a better democratic foundation for the country that we're starting through agreement of persuasion and deliberation as opposed to unilateralism and discrimination. John Burroughs. Loveland Chair of Indigenous Law at the University of Toronto Law School. My other guests, 
Sake Henderson, retired professor of law and advisor to the Grand Council of the Micmac. Michael Belgrave, professor of history at Massey University in Auckland. And Carwin Jones, lead academic in the Māori Law and Philosophy Program at the Māori Tertiary Institution in Otagi. The sound engineer is Russell Stapleton. I'm Annabel Quince, and this is Rear Vision on RN. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.